Let us begin in verse number one. And it was when, when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus's band. And entering into a ship of the Adramitium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coasts of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. And the next day we touched at Zidon, and Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself. And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over to Nidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete over against Salome. Salomone, and hardly passing it, came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lycia. Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them, and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading of the ship, and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenice and there to winter, which is an haven of Crete and lieth toward the south, west, and northwest." And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, losing thence, they sailed close by Crete. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize this morning that you have given to us your holy word, which is our authority and which is the foundation of our faith in that from it we get the truth of what you would have us to know. We believe in that scripture is the authority of our faith. It is where we derive our doctrine. It is from where we know how we are to conduct ourselves. And it is there we learn that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the one on whom we must believe to have our sins forgiven and to be saved. And so, as we open your word now, we pray that you would work in us by your spirit, apply it to us, and Lord, through this, may you be glorified. We ask your blessing now, and we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Well, good to have us all gathered together as we say Every week, amen, on the, the Lord's day to eventually, Lord willing, to gather together around the Lord's table. And so uh, 
what a blessing that is for us this morning. It's also a blessing, brethren, again, to have our Bibles in our hands, amen, to open our Bibles together, to, uh, to hear from the lips of God, amen, and uh, it's so important as we especially look at this text this morning, just to, to really examine it carefully, amen, to exegete it carefully, to let God's words speak to us this morning as we are certainly gathered together, and as we do indeed take up God's sacred words together this morning. We find ourselves, if you will, never mind the little thing, wading deep down into chapter 27. And uh, it's where the Holy Ghost leads Luke to record in precise detail, and this is really important, brothers, as we look at our text, in precise detail, if you will, of Paul's last sea voyage and his last shipwreck. Amen. We remember that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, these words. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods, amen. Once I was stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck. And so Paul's very familiar, amen, with shipwrecks. And uh, we're going to see that here uh, this morning. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Now, brethren, it is a, an amazing thing as we analyze the Word of God. And as a Bible believer, amen, we believe every jot, every tittle, the smallest to the greatest, that it is indeed inspired by God, that He wrote it out for us through these men, and He has indeed canonized it in these 66 books, amen, that we have the Word of God which we are to have. Now, what's interesting is just, again, as I am always amazed at the preciseness of the Word of God. And this is exactly what Luke, as he's led by the Spirit of God, shows us in our text this morning. In fact, the Holy Ghost is so precise in detail here that historians and archaeologists, those who are always searching and looking, literally have studied this text over the centuries. And they use it literally as an indispensable value, as a commentary on the techniques of ancient seamanship, it does indeed read like a ship's log. It's quite stunning, again, when you understand the depth of the text. We read over text sometimes, we glean over these things and don't even realize the depth that the Holy Spirit of God has placed in our text. Some details that include, brethren, the ship's nautical headings. Now again, brethren, we see this in our text. We'll dig into it a little deeper. The ship's directional drift, the type of storm that they encountered. You look at ship's logs. These are all the things that they must record, and they do certainly record. The reef configurations, amen? I mean, it's interesting, the depth, the, again, preciseness of God's word, and we're going to see the importance of this text surely this morning. The very numbers of the souls on board. I mean, it's all recorded here in our text and how each man survived. I want to just give you a couple of examples here again of the preciseness, the depth of God's word here. Look there at verses 27 and 28. Again, we're going to bounce ahead here. I just want you to see this. Again, you see here the soundings, the depth. This is what they are doing here is they're getting closer and closer to land. Look at verse 27. Look there if you would what the Bible says, verse number 27. But when the 14th night was come, as we were driven up and down the Adria, or the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country. 
and sounded and found it 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again and found it 15 fathoms. And so they're sounding here. They're seeing the depth of the sea starting to decrease. And so they're understanding that we're getting close to land. Now, when we get into this text, it's dark. It's been dark. It's been storming. And so here they are using these glorious shipment techniques that God has recorded for us here in our text. Look at verses 36 and 37. Again, keeping the ship's log, seeing the importance and the detail that we see. Look at verses 36 and 37. The Bible says here, Then were they all of good cheer. They also took some meat. And we were all in the ship, 203 score and 16 souls. So 275 souls were on board. That, that's very important, brethren, as we, again, as we go down the text. Finally, look at here how the Holy Spirit leads Luke to record how each man was saved. Look there, if you would, down at verses 43 and 44. Again, jumping ahead a little bit, we'll look at this next week, Lord willing. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that they, they that could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and get to land. And the rest, some on boards, some on broken pieces of the ship, and it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. Now, brethren, again, the end of the chapter, as we close here, is a promise that God had given Paul earlier in the text, and we'll look at that next week, right? He's, when they get into this, they make a, a, a what perceived from human perspective a bad decision to sail. We're going to look at this today. But what did God say? God said there will not be one soul lost, not one. And we get to the end of the chapter, and guess what? God's holy word his, his, his sovereign hand obviously worked that out as he saved every soul. But again, we see the great detail that we see in our text. In fact, look at verses 1 and 2. We're just going to kind of work our way down. Some of it we'll do chunks together because uh, um, that's kind of how it, Luke has kind of written this together. I want you to see verses 1 and 2, though. Verse number 1. And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy... They delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus' band. And entering into the ship at Adrimitim, we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia. One Aristicus. Now, brethren, you remember Paul had high praise for Aristicus. Again, we're getting names here of people who are on the ship. Amen. Again, this is something that's very detailed. Aristicus, you remember in Colossians, Paul said he's my fellow prisoner. He was with Paul here, obviously, as they're sailing across, working their way, if you will, up to Italy, up to Rome. And so he mentions him by name, a Macedonian of Thessalonica being with us. Now, Luke again records that sometime after Paul's meeting with Agrippa, which we just left the text in chapter 26, remember they had that great meeting there. In fact, we discovered in the text <laughs> that it was not at all what Agrippa and Festus and Bernice and all of the, all of the high fluters of, of the town thought it was going to be. They thought they were going to extract some stuff out of Paul when in fact the Holy Spirit sent Paul there to extract a decision out of them. You remember that. Agrippa mocked him. Well, you think you're going to make me become a Christian? Actually, that was the whole tenor of the thing was for Paul to preach and then for them to have to make a decision concerning what Paul preached about. And so here we are again. This meeting with Agrippa, here these arrangements are made for him to be taken to Rome. Thus, brethren, again, we, there's a word we've used a lot here in the book of Acts called providential 
that providential helpings of God, his working and ordaining things out. Again, we see this here, the guarding work of the Holy Ghost, assuring that the Lord Jesus Christ, you remember, this is all about a promise that was made earlier, way earlier, about the Lord telling Paul he's going to go preach where? Where is he going to end up? Rome. And so again, this we've been seeing this, understanding this, watching this. And again, it's the same thing. We see here the kindness of God that he gives to Paul as he's being loaded on the ship. This promise that Christ made will infallibly come to pass. But it is here again you remember that Luke picks up the we narrative. He says in verse 1, we set uh, into Italy. Now look at verse 2 again. This is pretty amazing. And again, brethren, please, as we start these we's, again, I want you to grasp and get a hold of the depth of what's taking place here. We have no idea how God, 1,800 years later, used this very text to save a man after he read this, after he went to disprove the book of Acts, and all of the details that follow behind we, the powerful jot and tittle of the Bible, brethren, is stunning. We have no idea what part of the word of God he will use to save someone. Amen? We believe and hold to, obviously, brethren, right, the verbal and plenary inspiration of the scriptures, which means that verbally God spoke it. It was written down exactly as he saw. But plenary literally means that every portion of the scripture is just as powerful and important as the, as the next. And that's really what you see here in this text. When you understand historically how God used it's stunning what God did some 1836 years later after Luke wrote this and how he used this. It's a stunning thing. So the preciseness that we see in our text, God uses for his glory and for his own goodness. It isn't here just by happenstance or by perp, you know, some kind of a, if you will, happenstance situation. I want you to see verse 2. Look what he says. In entering into the ship at Adronomy, we launched, meaning to sail to the coast of Asia. Look at verse number 3. And the next day we touched at Sidon. So again, we see we and we and we all through the text. Again, Luke is saying, hey, I was there. I'm recording this. The Spirit of God's leading me to record this with great preciseness. Look there, if you would, at verse number 5. And he says, and when we had sailed over, verse number 7, and when we had sailed slowly many days and scarce were come over against uh, Nidus, that the wind would not suffer us. We sailed under the guard, and Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. Again, we see the kindness and providential hand of God in Paul's life, even getting him to Rome and taking such good care of him. Now again, this may seem, as we're looking at our text, this we and the details that follow behind it, the precise detail, may seem to some to be innocuous, an unassuming, if you will, portion of Holy Writ. Now, let me just say this. I don't believe any portion of Scripture is unassuming or innocuous. Sidon, where Luke says Julius the centurion gave Paul liberty to go on to his friends to refresh himself. Now, again, we've talked all along about God using his enemies, about God using men along the way to bring Paul safely to Rome. He does it here again. Here's this centurion who could really give a wit about Paul. And yet here we have him giving Paul liberty, saying, hey, go be refreshed by your friends. And we're going to address the friends thing here in, in, in just a moment. But again, I want you to see here in verse number 6, look what he does. He absolutely is used by God. Verse number 6, 
And there, uh, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us in there. So again, here we go. God's taking the prisoners. He's putting them on the ship, because where's Paul going? He's going to Rome. He's going to Italy. And so God just simply uses this man to do that. In fact, in verse 43, the Bible says, as we just read, Paul was willing to save, or excuse me, the centurion was willing to save Paul uh, to get him to Rome. In other words, to protect him there. Now, this word friends... (laughs) This is the most interesting thing, brethren. Friends is indeed a title that Christians sometimes use to define themselves, to mark themselves, to tether themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see it in Scripture from one end to the other. And I want you to see what the Lord Jesus himself said. Now, there's a reason why he uses the word friends here. (laughs) Howard can remember. I remember, amen, and you hear a lot of, well, today's weak-kneed Christians, if you want to call them that, weak-kneed pastors, they've so polluted evangelism and so polluted the power of God when it comes to it. I mean, how many times have you heard, hey, uh, (laughs) how many times you had a sodomite in your house this week? Never, never. But I can tell you the last time I preached the gospel to one. When was the last time you had a Muslim in your house? Remember that? Uh, Never. But I remember the last time I preached the gospel to one. That's what we're to do. This friend thing has been so polluted and so made so unholy and so unbiblical. I want you to see what Jesus says concerning this. Look at John chapter 15. John loved using this terminology. Now, again, it's all throughout the things, as I said, this friendship evangelism that the Western culture has, has uh, grabbed onto, you don't find that anywhere in Scripture. It's unbiblical. It's untrue. It's, in fact, it's dangerous to the soul, is what it is. Inviting sodomites into your house for lunch is unbiblical and unholy and a danger to your family. Oh, boy, that's mean. He's mean. Listen to that. No, actually, let me show you how Jesus defines the word friends. Look at John chapter 15. Look there, if you would, starting in verse number 13. John chapter 15. Look at verse number 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay his life down for who? For his friends. Who are his friends? He defines who his friends are. (laughs) Listen to what he says. Verse 14, ye are my friends, if ye what? Do whatsoever I command you. That's who Jesus' friends are. His friends are the ones who've been converted, the ones who love the word of God, the the ones who read the word of God, and they submit to the commands of Christ. Look what else he says. Verse 14, henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you what? Friends. Friends, another term for believer, another term for Christian in the Bible. This is what we see. Look there. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. Do you see that there? Again, friends. This is what, this is what Luke's talking about. In fact, John loved this word. Flip me to third John, quick, if you would. Again, he uses this word again. This is used throughout Scripture. 
You are my friends. You are ones who have been converted. You are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, you hear these statements, brethren, from the Western church. Well, this is quite alarming. In fact, Charles Spurgeon called them scuttlefish. He said these scuttlefish stand in the pulpits and they and, and these modern day scuttlefishes. And it's it's amazing because they say things like this. You know, there's something weird that goes on. Somebody gets converted, and before very long, all their friends are Christians. Really? That's the way it's supposed to be. All of your friends are supposed to be Christians. This is biblical. This is not something unbiblical. This is something the Bible teaches to us. All of your close friends, all of the people who are inside your circle, who are affecting your children, who are affecting your family, who are, who are bringing things into your home, are to be your friends. And what I mean by that is brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's what I'm talking about. That's what the Bible defines it as. That's a friend. Now, you can be kind, and we should be. Amen? We should be kind. I mean, the last Sodomite I preached the gospel to, I was kind to them. They weren't kind to me. <laughs> right, Keith? But, they, but, but I'm telling you, you can be gracious to people and, and be faithful to the Word. If you're a Christian and all of your friends are not Christians, there's something wrong with you. Yes. It's the opposite of what the world teaches. Your friends, your close friends, those who have influence on you, on your family, on your children, are to be Christians. That's who comes into the home. Amen? I, I mean, there's so many foundational things for Scripture. Again, are we mean and evil and rude to people? No, but you're faithful to the Word of God. That's what we do. That's all we can do. You can't convert anybody anyway. I couldn't talk that sodomite out of his lifestyle any more than the man on the moon could do. But I could, if you would, I could stand there faithfully with my feet shod and preaching the gospel to them, which is what I, the Lord allowed me to do. And then I turned to my friends, Brother Keith and Dean was there. I mean, several people were there. I turned to my friends and said, what a blessing. What an amazing thing God would give us an opportunity to do. Quote scripture, preach the gospel. But brethren, your friends are to be very close and to be believers. Look at look what John wrote again here. Third John chapter, look at verse number 13 as he brings the third John to a close. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust that I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be unto thee. Our what? Friends salute thee. You see that? Yeah, Christians in the church, we're saluting one another. Look what he says. Greet the friends by name. This is the idea, brethren. This is what Paul is saying. It's an amazing thing that God would use Julius. And allow him, a prisoner, to be, if you will, taken by his friends and secured by his friends and, 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 and helped by his friends, those who were at the church there in the city that he's in. Your friends, brethren. Again, as we have said, if someone stands up in front of you and asks you the last time you had a sodomite in your living room, you better say, never. But you can then say, but I did preach the gospel to him on January 3rd, 2022. 
or whatever it is. Amen. This, this is interesting. This is really needful, brethren, as we consider those who are influencing us and those who will indeed have influence over us. Your friends. I can call up, I think, pretty much everybody in here that I see. I would consider them my friend. And uh, you could call them up and say, hey, Brother Keith, what do you think about this? And my friend is going to give me biblical counseling. Hey, Dean. Hey, Howard. What do you think about this? My friend is going to give me biblical counseling. I'm not calling, you know, the guy down over here at the drunk shop over here and asking him what he thinks. Right? I'm calling my friends. I'm calling them. I'm going to ask them. Now look back there at Acts chapter 27. Look here if you would. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9 of our text. We read that together. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Nidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete over against Solomon. And hardly passing it, came unto a place which is called Fair Havens. Nigh whereunto is the city of Lacia. Now, when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now, again, detail after detail after detail. We know precisely the time of year. We know exactly the month that he's doing this in. Look, the Spirit of God, again, so precise. He gives us this information. And is now already past. Paul admonished them. Luke, again, records in much detail the issues they had as they sent sail from Myra as the buffeting winds slowed their progress. And again, this is something that the Lord is using as he's moving along. I mean, you remember, right, when we went through the Gospel of Mark and they're on a boat? Remember the disciples, his friends are on the boat with him out there and this storm comes? You remember that, don't you? And they're all, well, they're all frightened. And they wake up Jesus, you know, not Creflo Dollar's Jesus, the biblical Jesus, you know, that did sleep in his human form. You know what I'm saying? He was tired. And they woke him up, and what did he do? He just stands up and he says what? Be still. And he simply just stopped the wind. He who created it spoke it to stop. I mean, it's amazing. It's an amazing thing. And so all of this, brethren, again, is being used by God as he slowly takes Paul along there. It slowed their progress. They finally arrived in Nidus, the last port call of Asia Minor, before sailing across the Adrian Sea. They Again, we see in the text that the centurion puts them on another boat. we got to get on another ship, brethren, because we're going to be heading on over. And that's where they're doing it. They switch ships. They get on another ship. And that's the one where they're going to sail across the sea. And when they left Nidus, they were knocked off their intended course. <laughs> and again, our text shows us every drift. Shows us everything we need to know. Detail by detail. Stunning. Again, a stunning thing. And again, this plays in to how God used this text. Again, we read this thing and we just say, well, it's just innocuous. It, it doesn't really mean that much. Oh, brethren, to one soul, it meant everything. It's a stunning thing. They land in Fair Havens near the town of Lacia. Luke tells us that the fast, again, this is how we know what time of year this was. The Day of Atonement is what he's talking about. 
which was held in that particular year, October 5th. So it's October 5th. I can tell you the, the, the rough date. It's passed, but, uh, and the Bible doesn't really say how long, but it was passed. So it's sometime in October that they are sitting here in, as Luke is recording this. And believe you me, brethren, as that passed, the summer weather has passed. And one thing you don't do, one thing we learned last year, <laughs> brethren, is how dangerous the weather can be. I went to Jamestown one time, sunny skies, beautiful. I'm just going to drive over there, and I'm going to drive right back. Not so fast. <laughs> not so fast. The drive over was beautiful. The drive back was not so pretty. You couldn't see anything. In fact, as Paul perceived, I perceived I got to get off the interstate here because the cars are stacked up, and they are just they're crazy people. And I got off the interstate, and I sat for about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Just let them go. And I got back on the interstate, and I didn't get very far. And guess what I saw? Those crazy people in their four-wheel drive pickups with their trailer laying in the ditch upside down. This is an amazing thing, brother. This weather thing plays into such a part of God's providential plan. The wind slowed them. It's late in the year now. And we see what else takes place. Sailing again, as I said, as Paul, as Luke recorded, Paul saying it's dangerous. Massive storms could and did spring up and make it deadly impossible to travel. You did not mess with that stuff. Amen? Especially in, well, you know, the, the Santa Maria, you know, these old wood, these wooden ships, they were well built, huge ships, some of them, but you still did not mess with with the weather, especially this time of year. It's like climbing uh, Mount, what is that? Mount Serenibo or whatever that thing's called, Mount Everest. There's like a short window they climb, like seven days, and after that, you don't dare do it because you won't come down. This is what we're seeing. This is what Paul is saying. This is what Luke is recording by the Holy Ghost. In fact, look at verses 10, 11, and 12 of our text. Look there if you would. Now, Paul admonished them in verse number 9. The Bible says, And he said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and the ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. Verse number 12, And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenix. Phoenix. Well, I call it Phoenix, Phoenix, of Crete, and lieth toward the southwest and the northwest. Again, as we have said, as the Bible says, Paul perceived, and rightly so, that sailing out of Fairhaven, wouldn't you like to just hang out in Fairhaven when the weather's bad? Amen? But no, hey, we need to stay here in Fairhaven. And, uh, of course... Luke tells us there, of course, they took a little vote in the crew and they decided to disregard Paul's admonition. The captain, the owner, and the centurion decided to sail on to the harbor of Phoenice. It's only about 40 miles away. We can make it. It's only 40 miles away. And they decide to go ahead and do it. This decision, brethren, of course, as we look at our text this morning, 
will lead to the glorification of God the Father. Isn't that ultimately what everything does? Everything leads to the glorification of God the Father. It leads to that. It leads to the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in Rome, as he said he was going to do. Just think how glorious all of this is as we're reading this inspired narrative. It's quite a stunning thing. Which, of course, brethren, is eternally powerful and effectual down through the ages of every time. Down to the ages even as we sit here this morning. I want to close with the most practical point for us. Again, this is text that was narrated. We looked at some important things in the text. How precision it really is. Tell you about a very thin man. A shoemaker. A tailor, if you will. Once entered a pulpit and preached a sermon from the book of Isaiah. I want, you to, I want to read the text. Let's, let us turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 45. And I want to read this text. And, and why am I doing this? Because, again, every portion of Scripture is powerful. God uses his word as he sees fit. So this thin man stands up, preaches a sermon from this text. Look at verse number 20. Isaiah chapter 45, look at verse number 20. Assemble yourselves and come draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. Ye have no knowledge that to set up the wood of their graven image, and pray unto a God that cannot, what? Save. Verse 21. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from the ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else besides me, a just God and a what? Savior. There is none besides me. Now verse 22 really grabs our attention. This is really what God used when a young man named Charles Spurgeon was sitting in a church and a string bean man standing up there preaching this text. God used this text to save Charles Spurgeon. Look at what it says. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Here's a little, <laughs> Brother Dean, I was thinking of Brother Paul, not to get sidetracked. But brothers, really, we're having a conference, Lord willing, October 6th or October 7th. And he's going to come and preach again. Now, the first time I met him, he walks, he, do, he was doing a funeral. Just a little man, strolls up there, gets in the pulpit, and just blew everyone's hair back. I, I, I mean, I looked at my wife and I said, is that coming out of Brother Paul? But here's this little man, strolls up to the pulpit, preaches this text, and what do we call Charles Spurgeon, the prince of, peach, of, of preachers, using the text to open his heart to save his soul? Now, let me take you to another one, because I don't like to make things too personal. But all of us know 
that the Word of God, as I said, is always involved when you're converted. I don't know, Howard, I think of the one the Lord used for you. When you were reading the Gospel of John, right? A little doubting Thomas. Mm-hmm. Stunning thing. Look at Acts, if you would. Acts chapter 2. Look at Acts chapter 2. This passage, of, although the Lord used other passages, but this is the one that opened my own eyes. When I read scripture, and this one just absolutely came to life to me. When I was lost, I was on my way to a devil's hell. And here I am reading this text. Look at verse number 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. God opened my eyes to the truth that the Lord Jesus didn't die for his own sin. He died for me. I killed him because of my own sin. And boy, I'll tell you, what happens in the text here is exactly what happened to me when I read that. And I understood it. The Lord opened my eyes. Look at verse number 36. I'm going to read it again. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in the heart. In other words, that word literally means to be stabbed through. It literally means to have the word of God just stab and plunge it in deep. And that's exactly what God did. He plunged it deep down into my inner core and being. And saved me. Despite myself, amen? And he just saved you too, despite yourself. But we can think, brethren, of powerful passages even today that speak to us. When we read them, they literally come to life. They change you. And if you're a Christian, they change your walk. It's a stunning thing, this powerful word of God. In Acts chapter 8, Verses 34 through 39. Let's just go over there. There was another man reading the book of Isaiah. Now, brethren, again, can I say this? If you think we should close the Old Testament and walk away from it, you are sniffing glue. Every word, every jot, every tittle, God uses for his own glory. He penetrates your heart with what he chooses to penetrate it with. Whether it's Acts chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 45, or Romans chapter 1 like he did to Martin Luther. Or John Calvin. Or you. All different texts, all used by God to penetrate the heart and save one soul. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse number 34. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet of this, of himself or some other man? And Philip opened his mouth and began that, with that, that same scripture and preached unto him who? Jesus. What scripture was he reading? Isaiah. Reading about Isaiah. Isaiah is prophesying about who Christ is. So he just opened up his mouth and preaches Christ to him. That's power. And what does God do? He uses Isaiah to open this man's heart. And just think of that, brother. Again, getting back to what we said earlier. You never know what you might say, what scripture you might quote to someone whom God is going to click, and he's going to use that to powerfully save them. 
It's a stunning thing. Look what it says. And as they, verse 36, as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart that thou, that thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. In verse 39, And then when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. A man's reading the prophet Isaiah. God effectually livens that word and causes this man to believe through his word. Now, brethren, let me close. Practically speaking, again, I've already said it a couple of times. Acts chapter 27, verses 1 through 44 seem to be, and can seem to some, to be innocuous and really not important. But those words, brethren, the ones that we've read part of this morning, the ones we will read next week, were words that God powerfully used to save William Ramsey. You ever heard of William Ramsey? You know who William Ramsey is? It's a stunning thing. One of the greatest books on the life of Paul was written by William Ramsey. It was called St. Paul the Traveler and the Roman Citizen. It was published in 1897. That's why I said 1835 years later, he read this text as he was over in the Mediterranean. It's a stunning thing, brethren. William Ramsey was indeed an atheist. He was a God-hater. He was, in fact, part of that lovely group called the Free Thinkers of Scotland. He was a complete and total reprobate. And what they were doing is they were taking books of the Bible and they were taking and they were trying to disprove the word of God. And so, lo and behold, old William was tasked with going over to the Mediterranean with the book of Acts and to read chapter 27, to read chapter 28 and disprove and discredit the holy scriptures. And you know what happened? (laughs) As he's over there with his feet on the ground and he's reading the book of Acts, And he's seeing the preciseness that the Spirit of God had Luke put in there. And all he could do is go, I can't disprove this. In fact, it not only doesn't disprove it, it proves it that it is indeed an inspired and holy, written and powerful book. The very opposite of what he was going to do, what he planned, God used this text, the we's. With all of, its, all of its definition and all of its strictness, all of the landmarks which, which we're going to see that he put in there, the man just simply looked at the word of God and said, it is indeed the word of God. And God used it to save this man who wrote several other books after this. So brethren, if you think for a moment, whether it's myself, whether it's Dean, whether it's Howard, whoever it is, at our conference, the men who preach, if you think for one moment that we think that the word of God is innocuous and is unimportant and a not useful every jot and tittle, we wouldn't let a man like this step on our pulpit. Not even close, right, brother? No way. No way. And we see here again the importance of every jot, every tittle, and the power of God's word. Amen? This is what we see. This is what we learn. 
And this is what we practically understand. This is why we are constantly, constantly preaching the word. Preaching the word. Be instant in season and out of season. That you may what? Give an answer for the hope that we have. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we...